Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zacharin, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Matthew D. Lassiter, Professor of History at the University of Michigan, where he's also co-director of the Carceral State Project. We're discussing his new book, The Suburban Crisis, White America and the War on Drugs. The Suburban Crisis is a political and cultural history of the United States drug war in the second half of the 20th century. Matthew examines the political initiatives undertaken by mostly white middle-class parents to address drug usage among their teenage children. These white middle-class users were painted as victims. Meanwhile, the so-called pushers and traffickers in urban environments were policed and criminalized. The suburban crisis investigates why drug use began to surge in the mid-20th century and how the political response led to coercive public health movements in urban environments and the militarization of the police. Matthew, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks very much for inviting me. Of course, you know, this book, you cover so much. It really is a uh, it's a, it's a it's a thick book. You 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 have so many examples. Uh, clearly, you spent a lot of time working on it. But before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your your background. I'm a professor of history at the University of Michigan, but relevant for the book, I grew up in a white upper middle class suburb of Atlanta, and I, you know, have really probably think about history from that perspective, a very racially and class segregated suburb in a, in a racially divided metropolitan region. And I ended up going to graduate school in history, ended up at the University of, of Michigan, a, a great place to be, and wrote a book called The Silent Majority, my first book, which was about the suburbs of the, of the American South. But I argued that what happened there during the civil rights movement was really a national story. And I always wanted to write a book that looked at suburban politics and culture nationwide. And that's what this ended up being. The, the book begins by looking at Los Angeles in 1950. I, I mentioned this on my episodes a few times, but I'm from Los Angeles. So I'm always interested in, in reading about L.A. history. Uh, but what was happening in L.A. in 1950-51? Uh, what was going on? Why was it such a mass hysteria? Los Angeles is the epicenter of the war on drugs and the war on narcotics, as people called it back in the 1950s. And it's you know, the kind of foundation for how we think about American suburban development, segregated white middle class neighborhoods. And really, the, the book idea took hold for me when I found an enormous number of letters from white middle-class suburban parents and organizations in California during the 1950s, mostly in metropolitan Los Angeles County, to the governors of California, Republican and Democratic governors, demanding get tough policies in the war on drugs, demanding that uh, the group they called pushers, by which they meant Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, get, get life imprisonment or the death penalty, for selling marijuana and heroin to their children. 
And I just thought, I've never heard about this suburban movement. Nobody's ever written about it. And I was already researching. I was out in California on a fellowship researching white suburban areas for housing segregation and school segregation. And I realized there's a huge untold story here about the war on drugs and the related war on crime in the suburbs. And you know, the, the book really starts in Los Angeles because first, because Los Angeles is the most important place, but also to make another point, which is this is not simply a federal war on drugs that comes from the top down and, and is imposed on local communities, but actually local people, suburban areas were demanding get tough policies. And that went up to the state government and up to the national government. And they responded to the local demands as much as anything. There's this phrase you use, a uh, white teenage narcotics crisis. Uh, wh what do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, you know, was it just teenagers smoking weed or, or was there actually this problem of, uh, you know, as, as it was kind of referred to as the, the marijuana to heroin gateway? Uh, was this was this a real thing or, or kind of a, a media fiction? So in the early 1950s, there were actually not that many um, people in the United States using illegal drugs. There were a very small number of people in the heroin market and a somewhat larger number in the, uh, you know, using marijuana. But the thing about what I call the way the, I, the suburban crisis operates, it doesn't actually take very many white affluent youth to get addicted to heroin, you know, to, to create a crisis in the media, a crisis in politics, a crisis for their parents. And so there were some white youth who were smoking and selling marijuana. Mostly they drove to Mexico and bought it themselves in Tijuana and brought it back and sold it to each other. And there was a much smaller percentage who got addicted to heroin. Uh, far more white Americans were addicted to legal pharmaceuticals during the 1950s, but the crisis rhetoric wasn't about that. And so on the one hand, the drug problem or the drug issue was really pretty small in the early 1950s, but it became part of a larger sense of a juvenile delinquency epidemic in white middle-class suburbia, and this was huge. There was a real sense that the post-war suburbs were growing so fast that young people had cars, which they hadn't really had access to before, that they couldn't be controlled by their parents, that they could roam around the metropolitan landscape. And Los Angeles is different from, say, New York City because uh, Mexican-Americans and African-American youth also had cars and they could drive where they wanted as well. And so there's real fears of racial mixing, fears of white youth getting in trouble, a lot of juvenile delinquency crackdowns on just basically youth subcultures, bar-based cultures, like some, some of what we're familiar with from the movies. And the drug crisis emerged as a subset of this larger juvenile delinquency crisis and the fear that the suburbs, which were supposed to be the place where parents moved to protect their children from dangerous influences, the suburbs really are widely seen as the antidote to juvenile delinquency, the antidote to crime, the antidote to drug addiction. And so whenever white youth start you know, behaving in mischievous ways, making trouble, getting in fights, drinking alcohol, which they did all the time, and sometimes also taking drugs, this crisis 
rhetoric emerged and there's a broad sense that something has to be done to solve this problem. When did this debate begin to move from from places like Los Angeles uh, to to the state level in California uh, to 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 a broader debate uh, and, and even then to the national? Uh, you know, what were the perspectives of lawmakers uh, in this kind of let's say early drug war? It really right away. So in 1950-51, this outbreak of of concern and fear emerges that that Mexicans and Mexican-Americans are spreading drugs around Southern California. And the California government immediately responds, unanimously passes laws. Then every couple years in the 1950s, you would have another set of demands for get tough laws and the state government would pass a new law almost immediately. But at the same time in 1951, the US Congress passed the first mandatory minimum laws uh, in the drug war aimed at both heroin and marijuana. This is a little bit of a different story. It's really a project by, um, it, it comes in two directions. First of all, uh, Chicago and New York City, the expansion of heroin markets in the early 1950s causes a lot of concern, uh, including among black residents, churches and black social groups who start demanding that something to be done to protect their children from narcotics markets. But when the state legislatures in Illinois and New York get involved, they don't talk about black youth as the victims. They go find a white kid somewhere who got addicted and they portray this white boy who became a heroin addict or this white girl who started in on drugs and, and allegedly became a prostitute. They would find a white girl who had consorted with black people in the language, you know, quote unquote, prostitute with Negroes at the time. And they would felt like this is the way to generate public alarm. The media jumps all over it. And then uh, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics Commissioner Harry Anslinger in Washington also saw this as an opportunity for get tough legislation. So you had liberals in Congress who were concerned about black youth, concerned about juvenile delinquency, who are pushing through extremely punitive drug laws, and also the conservatives and law enforcement support them as well. And then a broad range of parents from black community groups to like white middle class suburban areas care about this issue too. And there's basically nobody opposed to it, almost nobody. A few public health experts said drug use is not a crime. This is a medical issue. We shouldn't, you know, people who are selling drugs are often addicted themselves. And, but mostly it was just passed, you know, nearly unanimously. Truman signs the legislation in the early 1950s. You get another round in 1956. And the same dynamic happens every time. There's like demands from the big metropolitan areas like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and then the state governments act. Then the federal government responds. And then the federal response nationalizes the problem. And so all the states everywhere start passing laws, even if they don't really have a local, you know, drug crisis going on. And I think that's a larger model that I talk about in the book for how policy formation works, actually. A few urban centers and metropolitan regions pipeline an issue up to the state and federal level. 
federal government with the media, you know, going bonkers about the issue, passes a get tough law, and then every state kind of complies because the federal government creates financial incentives and other structures to get every state to pass what it called model drug legislation. So then by the early, by the mid 1950s, you have mandatory minimum laws in almost every state in the country. What did the policing look like? Um, you know, in, in, a, in urban communities, let's say, you know, you have a, a, a white teenage middle class kid, they get caught with, with some, some marijuana. Uh, what's their, their, I don't know if there's necessarily like a, in an average experience that you can point to, but but what's their experience going to be like with law enforcement? That's a great question. So I'm going to I'm going to answer in two stages because there's how policing operated in the 50s when it was mainly through the juvenile delinquency system, and then there's what happened in the mid to late 60s when huge numbers of white middle class youth started breaking the felony drug laws uh, with a kind of righteous abandon that they had the right to smoke marijuana in that political context of Vietnam and everything in yeah, the counterculture. My, my next question is actually is is definitely about psychedelics and, and how the hippie culture influences that. But yeah, like I but uh, yeah, I'm definitely interested in, in pre the hippie culture, what that was like, that policing. So the book, I really was trying in the book to dig into how white drug markets actually work and how policing and prosecution and the juvenile delinquency system operated. And this turned out to be both a really difficult task and a really like fascinating puzzle to unravel because the whole goal of the system was to control and rehabilitate and deter white middle-class youth, but leave no trace in their official records that they had ever had an encounter with law enforcement. So, the juvenile delinquency system in the 1950s was just a massive apparatus of social control that operated not through criminal law technically, but through status offenses and through the right of the government to basically detain any uh, juvenile anywhere for almost any reason. And uh, every, every young person in America technically uh, was a juvenile delinquent every single day because all you you know they get them for loitering, get them for public disorder, anything they could they could stop you for anything. And so, juvenile delinquency authorities and the local police that worked with them detained millions of youth every year. Ninety percent or more uh, didn't go through the system. They would counsel them. If you think of Rebel Without a Cause, where the at the start of the film, Jim is drunk and Judy has been picked up for streetwalking and Plato's, you know, shooting puppies and their parents uh, come into the police station and the police are like friendly and the juvenile delinquency. They work with these white class kids and they tell the parents, you know, control your children. Your children are confused. And it was a real sense for white youth that they had to commit a very serious crime of violence to actually be put into the delinquency system. And even then they often weren't. So it was about arresting, helping, scaring uh, young people, a black and Mexican American youth. Um, even for them, more than half of arrests were they never went into the formal juvenile delinquency system either. But keep in mind, they're getting arrested for it like anything a little bit of beer drinking, like driving around in a car with your friends. 
after curfew. But Black and Hispanic youth were far more likely to be adjudicated as delinquents and put into the delinquency system. So you have an entire police enforcement uh, system based on trying to control white youth, white middle class youth, but not in any way inhibit their futures and their college aspirations with any kind of record. Now, this system is a total failure on its own terms because they just cannot control young people. They cannot stop what they do in their cars. They can't scare them out of experimenting with marijuana. They can't stop them from drinking alcohol, which was the status crime that 90% of teenagers were breaking the underage drinking laws and far more of the social problems that emerge were from alcohol than from illegal drugs. And so they, so the systems in place in the fifties, arrest, scare, divert, don't get these youth who are quote unquote good youth or quote unquote otherwise law abiding youth into the system. And that's where everything sits when marijuana rates really escalate starting in the mid 1960s rates of usage. How did the influx of psychedelics and hippie culture in the mid to late 1960s impact the fight against drug usage and drug users? So around 1965, 1966, marijuana use starts spiking um, among college students. And it almost immediately starts trickling down into the affluent urban and suburban high schools that are nearby. And so this is the era of the anti-war movement, the counterculture, the so-called hippie culture is emerging. And I think really the key year is 1967. You get the summer of love in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Young people are heading to, um, to the Haight-Ashbury. Uh, I, I really got into the actual you know, ethnographies that, that psychiatrists and academics did of suburbs outside San Francisco and how many young white middle-class people were driving into the Haight-Ashbury, driving into the Big Sur, buying drugs, bringing home radical politics, bringing home marijuana, but also bringing home LSD, spreading that around. The clothing styles changed with a story we're familiar with, the hippie style, the kind of youth slang. There's a really politicized youth movement emerging and drugs are a key part of that psychedelic drugs lsd and also marijuana and this becomes you know, thrilling for youth and extremely concerning for media politicians parents and the response at the political level is that the drugs are causing the rebellion i don't analyze it that way the drugs are kind of part of the subcultures in which political rebellion is flourishing. This is one of many ways that American culture and politics tries to depoliticize young people and to say, you know, their grievances, their critiques about suburban materialism, their opposition to the war, their embrace of racial equality, like the marijuana is causing them to act like this and or the LSD as well and so it becomes like part a, a part of these youth subcultures and I, I use youth subculture really broadly not just 
the hippies and the bohemians in the East Village in New York City or the Haight-Ashbury and the countercultural enclaves in cities around the country, but a suburban, upper-middle-class white culture embracing these values emerges as well. And a strong argument for legalization of marijuana and LSD as part of this political youth subculture. LSD was not illegal until 1966. It's not criminalized by the federal government until 1968. And it has to do, it has everything to do with how it's associated with the political critique of young people, not just the you know dangers of the drug, which while real, were really hyped and 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 overhyped. And but they only made LSD possession a misdemeanor because of the sense that white students were the ones who were breaking this law. And the Lyndon Johnson public health officials actually just said out loud, we don't want to make it a felony because we don't want to put put millions of white kids in jail. And eventually in 1970, they did the same thing with marijuana. They reduced the marijuana possession penalty from a felony to a misdemeanor because millions of quote unquote otherwise law-abiding white youth were, were really breaking the felony law unapologetically by the late 60s, early 70s. Correct me um, if the specifics of this are wrong, but I think I recall you cite a statistic that uh, nationally one in five high school seniors in the late 60s had broken uh, drug laws and something like near 50% in major metropolitan areas of high school seniors had broken laws. So about a third of high school seniors in the affluent suburbs around New York City and Los Angeles and Chicago and elsewhere had felony crime by the late 60s almost all marijuana, some LSD. And, um, you know, by, by the early 1970s, around half of high school seniors had uh, broken the marijuana law. But by then, the federal government and many state governments had reduced the penalty to a misdemeanor. And what's a really interesting point to make here, they reduced the penalty to a misdemeanor, not just because white kids were being arrested, and they didn't want them to become felony criminals, but because the system lacked the capacity to punish white youth who had been arrested as felony criminals because juries and judges and prosecutors even wouldn't, prosec- wouldn't convict them for a felony because the consequences were too severe. And so one of the arguments that Congress made that, that local prosecutors figured out that, that, that state, state laws did was to say, if we reduce the penalty to a misdemeanor and threaten these youth with 30 days in jail, then they'll agree to go into a rehabilitation program. Whereas the 10-year felony sentence in prison is not a realistic deterrent, but 30 days in jail, and they created a deferred prosecution and other loopholes. So if you went through your rehabilitation program, you ended up with no record at all, clean slate. So on the one hand, you can see this as about white privilege. Lots of white youth are being arrested and they're getting diverted into rehabilitation programs. And in the end, they get no record unless they are outspoken political radicals that, you know, unless they are, are like not cooperating, then they would get the book thrown at them a little bit more. 
On the other hand, you can look at this as a massive social control program and a kind of punishment for each middle class youth because we're talking always about recreational marijuana smokers who are being arrested, threatened with jail time, forced into a rehabilitation program as addicts and drug abusers, which is just not true for recreational marijuana smokers. And there's racial privilege involved in that process, but there's also a real effort to control youth, a very unsuccessful effort. This didn't work. It didn't stem the rates of marijuana use, which just kept increasing during the 1970s, but they put a lot of white youth into rehabilitation programs. The federal government and state governments shifted a lot of money that was supposed to go to treat people with serious drug abuse problems, including heroin addiction. They shifted that money to suburban public health programming, to marijuana rehabilitation programs, to all of the drug films and the just say no kind of programming that we're familiar with. And there was a huge amount of resources spent in the futile effort to stop white affluent youth from smoking marijuana and allegedly escalating to LSD burnouts and heroin addicts and countercultural rebels and hippie radicals. And that's, you know, enormous amount of resources in the war on drugs that could have gone to address like real, real social problems, real public health problems. In, in the third chapter of the book, Generation Gap, uh, you, you look at San Francisco, New York, DC, and LA, you do these, these sort of interesting um, uh, municipal studies. And, and you also look at, at what the drug markets looked like, how they actually functioned in addition to to many of the things that we've already been discussing about, you know, the kind of the selective law enforcement, but, but what did the drug markets actually look like? You know, what was it, was it really marijuana being sold next to heroin or, or was it, what, what were there, were they uh, more separate? Totally separate, uh, especially in the, in the white suburban or areas or white middle-class parts of cities. You, you basically had a marijuana market. It was very decentralized. It was very difficult for law enforcement to figure out how it operated because it was in many ways like a nonprofit market once it got into the into the circulation you know somebody would buy a stash somebody's selling it somebody's driving to Mexico or they start growing it in northern california you know buying it at the, at the beach communities buying it in the surfing places but like as it gets into the high schools people are just sharing it and you know, which is probably familiar to, to, you know, many people who ever encountered a, a marijuana subculture as an adolescent or college student or in their 20s. Like, it, there's a lot of sharing that goes on. It's not, it's not a profit oriented at the kind of intimate level. And um, the Congressional Committee actually came up with a concept called the sharer pusher. And they said the sharer pusher should not Get, get a felony, even if they're selling marijuana, only the professional pusher. So in the 1970 federal law, they had a carve out for the so-called sharer pusher. They called it the college student loophole, which is you would also get charged with a misdemeanor for selling if you weren't profit oriented. And so, you know, I really tried to trace it. Chapter three is probably my favorite chapter. It was a real challenge to figure out how a market that had, you know, that deliberately law enforcement 
they don't want people to have records that it was kind of hidden in the official records, but you could find it in various parts, you know, parts of the historical archive. And it's, um, you know, like kids back then, kids, they would get on an airplane, they would like fly to New York City, bring back 20 pounds of marijuana in a, in a satchel, and it's in Northern Virginia. That's the, the first big major drug bust in the Northern Virginia suburbs was uh, just a couple of, um, you know, late, late teens, kids who decided they would just go get some or drive to New York City and bring it back. And so it really befuddled law enforcement. The LSD market did too. There's this hilarious congressional hearing where the senators, Senator Ted Kennedy and others, are grilling these countercultural, you know, folks about like, well, how do the LSD pushers, you know, push the LSD on you? And they're laughing at them and they're saying, you're not going to be able to figure this out. Um, and the, they say, well, who's tricking you into using LSD? And they're just, they're just kind of mocking them and saying, that's not, that's not actually how it operates. And I will say the, the dominant frame in the 50s and 60s through the early 70s is that nefarious dealers and pushers seduce and trick white youth into using drugs. And basically no teenager ever, ever says that's how the market works. They haul them before congressional committees and they say, that's not how the market works. The academics go in and do investigations and everybody says that's not how the market works nobody's forcing nobody's pushing nobody's jabbing a heroin needle into an innocent girl's arm which was a scene they often use in the drug educational films shown to white youth who laughed these kind of films out of the classroom because this wasn't realistic people were not taking a puff on a marijuana cigarette and becoming a heroin addict within a week but that's what happened in the drug educational and drug prevention films in the 50s and 60s. So, yeah, I hope that answers your, yeah, your question. No, I, can, I can elaborate if you want. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think it, it definitely uh, does. You know, I, I, we, we've, um, we've been focusing, you know, at the local and state level of enforcement. I think it kind of sets us up for, for the, uh, you know, for the Nixon administration and the way that they would really start to address this at at a national level, obviously, you talked a little about the Truman administration and mandatory minimums, but um, you know, how did the, the Nixon administration respond to this kind of national drug crisis movement? Um, you know, what type of enforcement was passed, and you know, what were some of the arguments that were presented to pass strict laws against marijuana possession? So, Congress in 1970 passes a major overhaul of the drug laws, and. It's a huge omnibus bill. It creates a new regulatory regime for legal pharmaceuticals as well as illegal drugs. It creates a system that we're familiar with today, Schedule 1, Schedule 2, Schedule 3. Uh, puts marijuana in Schedule 1 as a super dangerous drug with no medical benefit, along with heroin and cocaine. Uh, that actually um, was disputed in Congress, but ended up passing because the Nixon administration strongly insisted on that. And in general, um, I argue that the impetus for this law is the enormous number of white youth who are being arrested for marijuana crimes in a sense that the system has to solve this problem 
of a group I call impossible criminals. And the, they want to stop marijuana use without arresting uh, or without, without actually incarcerating uh, these white drug criminals. And so that's what I talked about earlier where they create the misdemeanor loophole. But at the same time, the law escalated. It really doubled the penalties for trafficking for all drugs. And so it's important to emphasize that congressional Democrats wrote this law in uh, negotiation with the Nixon administration. Nixon often gets too much credit, in my view, too much blame, too much credit for launching the war on drugs. It began in the 50s. It had grassroots. It came out of California, more than, say, New York City. Rockefeller drug laws in 1973 are not the most important you know, foundation of the war on drugs. And it's, it's California. It's emerging. But there's a major problem in the heroin markets in New York City and other big cities in the late 60s, early 70s. And there's a lot of consternation in the media and elsewhere that white youth are getting involved in these heroin markets. There's a media hype that the white, the white suburban kids who are going to the Haight-Ashbury and going to the East Village and Greenwich Village in New York City are turning into heroin addicts and, um, you know, taking speed and becoming like LSD and amphetamine burnouts. And so you have this kind of perfect combination of a real increase in the narcotics markets in the urban centers, a definite encountering of those markets by white youth. And it, like I said, it doesn't take that many white youth to, to go crisis rhetoric. And so Congress passes the law, Democrats largely write it, but then the Nixon administration takes the law and escalates the war on heroin, the war on you know, crime, the war on urban street crime. There's all kinds of nonsense hype about narcotics addicts are committing you know billions of dollars of of theft and crime that's just not how that's not how heroin use works people who are using heroin don't go around mugging people they maybe do a little property theft but there were all kinds of fears about that and so the Nixon administration really rides the wave of suburban marijuana usage into a larger get tough movement I would say it this way. Most people in the United States are not concerned about the New York City heroin market. But most people in the United States, parents, are concerned about their kids smoking pot. And so for Nixon to start telling all these gateway stories about the good kid who experiments with marijuana, becomes a heroin addict, often they said the good girl who becomes a prostitute in the urban slums, this racial fear, and they conflated these two markets to, to say the drug crisis is universal. It's not just in New York City, it's all over America. And then you start getting enormous amounts of funding, goes to every state, every police department, and they started their narcotic squads. And you know it's kind of like what happened after 9-11 with terrorism. Uh, where the federal government sends the money everywhere. And so even places with like zero terrorist issue, they, they, they start using this money to do all kinds of things. And that's what happened with drug war money as well. Call it a universal crisis and you're mobilizing 
you know, people everywhere, police departments everywhere, state governments, local governments everywhere. And that happened in the early 1970s. And the number of people arrested for drug use in the United States skyrocketed, partly because you had more dedicated narcotic squads or patrol police are like profiling youth in their cars and on the streets. A lot of the arrests were white, white young people, teenagers and 20-somethings just busted for marijuana possession, but increasingly they're starting to fight the war on so-called urban street crime and arrest a lot of the black youth in particular who are like selling drugs on the street as opposed to the way the suburban market works, which is, you know, in the basements, in the cars. In the uh, the mid to late 70s, you highlight these parental groups that began to push for stricter rules to discourage drug use. Uh, and I think a lot of these campaigns that were started, that they initiated then, are a lot of things that we're familiar with even today. Uh, you know, who are some of the most prominent groups you examine in these fights? Uh, you know, who were their leaders? What were they pushing for? The most important group is the National Federation of Parents for Drug-Free Youth, which formed in 1980. But I would start the story a little bit earlier because in the early to mid-1970s, there is a mass movement to legalize marijuana. And the American Civil Liberties Union starts it, along with college students and countercultural activists, and then Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, jumps in too. And there's a real sense that marijuana might be legalized in the 70s. California has the first referendum, in 1972, and a third of uh, people vote for marijuana legalization. And the writing seems on the wall that eventually this is going to happen. And then the compromise became decriminalization. And a normal strategically shifts to decriminalization. A lot of legalization advocates do too. And about 10 states passed decriminalization laws in the 1970s, which is the marijuana market's still illegal, but possession is not going to be treated as a crime. And the Carter administration endorses decriminalization in the 1976 election and then afterward. And so you have uh, two things happening. First, a sense that marijuana decriminalization is can't be stopped. It has enormous momentum. And second, marijuana use and especially in the white middle-class areas in the suburbs, is moving as, you know, as drug and alcohol use tends to do from the 12th graders and the 11th graders down to the 9th graders, the 8th graders. So by the mid-70s, more than half of high school seniors in major metropolitan areas have at least experimented with marijuana, but about 8 to 10% of 7th and 8th graders also have. And that's not a lot, 8 to 10%, but it doesn't take a lot of, you know, 12 and 13-year-olds getting stoned to get parents worked up about it and the media and the political system. And so in the late 70s, parents groups started emerging in different suburban areas. I charted them in a map. Most of them were 99% white, 98, 99% white, wealthy suburbs. They were not right-wing parents because right-wingers, parent, right-wing parents, their kids weren't smoking marijuana. It tended to be liberals or kind of like 
non-partisan moderates, often they live near university campuses. Uh, the, the key group came out of Atlanta, and it was in the same neighborhood where Emory University is, just a couple of miles from downtown. And they started arguing that marijuana was the cause of all kinds of problems, that it was causing young people to like be amotivational. They, they called it the amotivational syndrome. Keep in mind the 70s, there's a major economic recession. The divorce rates are skyrocketing. The number of women going back into the workforce, especially white married women, is increasing. And so there's a lot of concern about latchkey children left at home. And these parents groups start saying, like, nobody's there when the kids get home from school and they're just getting stoned. And they're not going to be competitive. They're not going to grow up to be the next generation of productive workers in a capitalist economy. The moms aren't in the home anymore to watch them, which is the sort of suburbs are organized around the idea that the mom's at home. So what happens when when she's not And these groups really started arguing that marijuana was the most dangerous drug in America because it was causing young white kids, middle school age kids to become dropouts and burnouts, and it was destroying families. And they even argue that the federal government is spending too much money on heroin and heroin addiction because the that, there's just a small number of actual heroin addicts in America, but there's a lot of white kids who are in danger of becoming stoners and getting the amotivational, the so-called amotivational syndrome. And the Carter administration changes its decriminalization policy almost immediately in response to a bunch of fired up, telegenic, white, upper middle class parents going in the media and demanding um, marijuana be like the new priority in the war on drugs. The decriminalization movement fizzles. No state decriminalizes after this movement revs up in 78, 79. And then in 1980, they form as a National Federation of Parents for Drug-Free Youth. They're quite influential in the Carter administration, which basically helped, but gave them funding to become a national movement. And then they become major players in the Reagan administration and help push and convince the Reagan administration to put Nancy Reagan in charge of the Just Say No campaign. That was a completely a political outreach to these white, upper-middle-class parents. I just wanna say this really clearly. There's almost no overlap between this group and like Jerry Falwell's moral majority. Th these are not the future members of the Christian coalition. By 83, 84, conservative parents were entering this group too as it became a huge nationwide organization, but the leaders of it were really white parents who didn't have like a partisan right-wing ideological agenda. They just thought marijuana was a problem for their kids and they wanted it. They wanted the government to stop it, which ends up meaning, you know, when, when white parents, especially mothers, demand something, our political system almost always responds. Gun control is maybe the only issue where fired up white upper middle class moms don't get their way in our political system. And so they just start shoveling money to, into marijuana and addiction, talking about marijuana is actually way more dangerous than we realized because these parents said it was dangerous. And the federal government started banning experts who had supported normal 
and advocated marijuana legalization. They, uh, the Reagan administration bans responsible use, uh, which was a, a new technique that emerged in the 70s, a kind of harm reduction technique to reach out to young people in drug prevention, not by zero tolerance rhetoric, but by trying to convince them to like be careful in how they drink alcohol or like marijuana might not be great, but it's not as bad as LSD and heroin. So just like, you know, treat them like rational actors. They ban all this. And this group becomes a major grassroots lobbying force in, in Washington and, and around the country by, by the 82, 83, 84. And, you know, I, I think a lot of listeners might just even be, you know, the cursory familiar familiarity with the Reagan administration's uh, drug policies. Um, but, you know, that old, uh, you know, marijuana to heroin gateway line, can you talk about how sort of transformed to this marijuana to crack cocaine uh, gateway story? So in the early 1980s, this group, the National Federation of Parents for Drug-Free Youth, started warning that the, the, the problem was no longer marijuana to heroin. Um, it was actually marijuana to cocaine. And even before crack emerges in 85, 86, cocaine, powder cocaine, it's a huge drug, especially in white America. White professionals are using it. Something like 20% of high school students have experimented with cocaine by the early 1980s, lots of college students. And so this is a plausible scenario, marijuana to cocaine progression. And the, um, th there's also a real sense that cocaine is not that dangerous of a drug in the 70s and early 1980s. And the National Federation of Parents changes that. The Reagan administration is allied with them. PBS runs educational programs with them, talking about the new threat of marijuana to cocaine. They also created a new gateway argument of alcohol to cocaine. And this is partly why you get the alcohol minimum age raised to, to uh, 21 in 1984. They call alcohol the new gateway drug. Um, and so even before crack cocaine emerges, this is, uh, this is all over the, the kind of political debate. But one, one point I make in the book about the crack cocaine is that the Reagan administration wasn't paying attention because they didn't care about crack cocaine users and they didn't care about black America and urban centers except as crime problems. And so Reagan, Nancy and Ronald Reagan are talking about the great successes in the war on drugs because the percentage of white youth smoking marijuana had declined from like 49% to 47% in the mid 1980s and that they had passed the alcohol age raising law and the Democrats in Congress and like black leaders in the cities are raising hell about crack cocaine as this new problem. And Ronald and Nancy Reagan, it's kind of like how they looked at AIDS. It wasn't their constituents and they just didn't care about them. And so if you actually go back and look in the congressional archives, Democrats completely pushed the get tough crack cocaine law. They wrote it, they pushed it through Congress. They're the ones in, you know, Joe Biden, Charles Rangel, and Harlem, they demand action. They're criticizing the Reagan administration constantly for losing the war on drugs. And you end up getting this like ferociously punitive 
1986 crack law and the Reagan administration comes around, especially with the DOJ and its crime control policies toward like really punitively enforcing it. But as a drug problem, it wasn't their concern because white kids were their concern because white parents were their constituents. I, I think that maybe one of the, the most important uh, lessons of your book, uh, I'm curious what you think of this, is that that this war on drugs from the 1950s through the, through the, the 1980s really was a consensus project. Uh, and, and, I, and I'm wondering, you know, you use this phrase consensus project, what you mean by it and why it's important to kind of dispel the myth that this was a, a kind of a one-sided war that was waged. I mean, two things by consensus. First, consensus is actually how policy formation and laws passed. Republicans and Democrats didn't agree on everything, but almost all Republicans and all Democrats in Congress and in the state legislatures voted for every major law that escalated the war on drugs. And they often competed to, to be the tougher one and accuse the other one of being too soft. And so in terms of policy formation, the drug war is bipartisan and it always has been, and it still is today, first. Second, by consensus, I mean that the consensus in our policy debate is for criminalization. And often there's a punitive approach is the opposite of the rehabilitative approach. So you can have punitive or you can have rehabilitative, that, that the country used to be rehabilitative and then the conservatives made it more punitive. There's no question that the drug war has become more punitive over the last 50, 75 years. But arresting people and forcing them into rehabilitation is also a punitive policy. The opposite of punitive drug policy is not you know, Joe Biden's arguments that deserving victims should be arrested and mandated to go into rehab. The opposite is harm reduction and, and not, no criminalization at all and treating this as a public health issue, not through criminal law. And so the consensus is for criminalization. And even as we're slowly carving marijuana out, the larger criminalization consensus remains intact in our political system. And I would say a third thing too. The consensus in our culture and in our politics is that white youth and white Americans are the most important victims. There's efforts. Liberals have long argued that some black and brown users are victims too, but nobody argues that white middle-class youth, white middle-class Americans aren't the victims. And so there's a racial consensus, really a racist consensus in the political culture of the drug war that white Americans have to be protected at all costs, that they matter most when it comes to this issue. So in this study, you know, we, we've really uh, sort of barely scratched the surface of, of what you cover. That you really go at, uh, in incredible depth in, in a lot of your case studies. Uh, but, you know, just in the interest of time and, and kind of thinking about today, the issues that we face today, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, what do you think that your study tells us about our current conception of the nation's drug problems? You know, marijuana and psychedelics, they're increasingly becoming legalized and decriminalized. Meanwhile, there's a, there's a crisis around opioid usage, both legal and illegal. 
you know, what do you think policymakers should consider most when examining the the past uh, when it comes to to regulating drugs? My my views on this are not original. I think most scholars and harm reduction advocates who have studied the war on drugs would take the position that we need a non-coercive harm reduction policy rather than a law enforcement first policy. There is just no question empirically that the effort to control the supply side does not work and cannot work. It actually makes it worse. Trillions of dollars squandered, the more you crack down, the more the drugs become purer, more dangerous, more lucrative for the illegal suppliers. We learned this lesson very clearly during alcohol prohibition. The violence in the market largely ended with uh, legalization and the end of prohibition of alcohol, and you end up with a highly regulated system, and you go to the store and you know what a 5.3% or a 8.1% beer is, you know what 100 proof means in liquor, you like know what you're ingesting. And, you know, we have a fentanyl market, people are buying Xanax on, on the internet and like ingesting fentanyl, we, like there, you just cannot control this market. You cannot eradicate the underground market. I mean, a highly regulated market is still going to produce, you know, an underground market when it's taxed, but it, some sort of harm reduction, legalization, decriminalization, some sort of Portugal model where you, you know, really approach this through non-coercive public health, people who want rehabilitation. Uh, if we took like a tenth of the money we spend on interdiction and law enforcement and actually build a robust system of public health and rehabilitation, and then didn't force people into it, but made it available to them. And I just think we have to be honest that we cannot win this war and we cannot eradicate this problem. We cannot, like Obama used to say, well, marijuana legalization is not the panacea. But no public policy is a panacea. No public policy is a solution for all of our problems, which is what a panacea is. Like, it's a question of like, what does more harm and what does less harm? And almost everything that we've done for the last 75 years does more harm. So we need to do less harm. And that I think is, you know, the larger takeaway. What, what I think is my original contribution to this debate is showing how much the war on drugs has played out in white affluent communities too. And that the model of, of arresting and coercing people into rehabilitation as the alt, alleged alternative to the get tough war on drugs, that really got worked out with white youth as a target. And so the solution is not expanding that model to black youth and black Americans also. If you read the Biden administration's recent national drug control strategy, they say, basically, we need less racism in the process of arresting people and diverting them to treatment. I mean, obviously, it would be nice to have less racism in this process, but we need to stop arresting people and diverting them into treatment. And so the, the way we developed a model to control white Americans is it's not a great idea to just expand that model to try to control all Americans through a different coercive structure, but just to like recognize that the government should not be coercing people at all in the area of public health. Yeah, I think that, that you know, certainly, uh, you know, you, you bring with with those arguments just copious amounts of evidence showing the 
just the utter failure of the war on drugs. It really is a, it really is a great tragedy in many ways. Uh, and the ways in which we've allowed, uh, you know, anxiety to, you know, to not actually consider the facts and, and understand or even study these things that, that were, that were banning, uh, and these people that were punishing, um, well, uh, Matthew, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. The book is The Suburban Crisis, um, when a White America and the War on Drugs. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for all the great questions and for inviting me on the program.